Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Institute of All Politics Rest in Campus. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia program at IWP. For those who are new to IWP, um, we are Graduate School of Intelligence, National Security, and International Affairs. And we have seven master's programs, including two online, as well as a doctoral program, which is called Doctor of Statecraft and National Security, and 18 uh, certificates of graduate study, as well as a continuing education program. So if you are interested in learning more about any one of our um, programs, please feel free to come speak to me after the event is over, and I'll be happy to help you get connected with one of our recruiters. And also, if you'd like to support the work of IWP, please visit iwp.edu slash donate. So I wanna give you a little bit of background of our um, China Asia program at IWP, um, which is a new academic initiative that encompasses academic courses, lectures, and research concerning China and Asia, as well as partnerships with academic institutions in the allied countries in the regions of Northeast and Southeast Asia. This program includes two lecture series, um, one Asia Initiative Lecture Series, and the other one is the China Lecture Series. Founded in 2017, the China Lecture Series is designed to promote discussion on China and the challenges this country presents to the US and the rest of the world. The China Asia program is based in DC as well as IWP's rest on campus here at the Pragmatics. Um, as Dr. Long Nguyen, an IWP trustee and the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Pragmatics and his wife, Kimi Duong, vice chairman and CFO of Pragmatics have kindly donated office space and classrooms in his corporate building. As a distinguished scholar practitioner, Dr. Long has been an active supporter of the U.S. intelligence community while serving as a leading figure for the D.C. Vietnamese community, including the movement for Renaissance of Vietnam. IWP is delighted to have this event here in Reston today, and we would like to express our gratitude to Dr. Long and Kimi for their tremendous support. Thank you. So today's event is part of the China Lecture Series, and Dr. John Lanchowski, the founder, president emeritus, and the chancellor of IWP will be presenting his lecture entitled U.S. Cold War Strategy Against China. From 1981 to 1983, Dr. Lanchowski served in the State Department in the Bureau of European Affairs and as Special Advisor to Undersecretary for Political Affairs Lawrence Eagleberger. From 1983 to 1987, he was Director of European and Soviet Affairs at the National Security Council. In the capacity, he was the Principal Soviet Affairs Advisor to President Reagan. Dr. Lanchowski has been associated with several academic and research institutions in the Washington area, including um, George Washington University, the University of Maryland, the American Enterprise Institute, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, the Council for Inter-American Security, and the International Freedom Foundation. He has also served on the staff of Congressman James Carter. Dr. Lanchowski is the author of Soviet Perceptions of U.S. Foreign Policy, the Sources of Soviet uh, Perestroika, Cultural Diplomacy, Full-Spectrum Diplomacy, Grand Strategy, and numerous other writings and addresses on U.S. foreign policy, dipl public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, counter-propaganda, political affairs, Soviet-Russian affairs, comparative ideologies, 
intelligence, strategic deception, counterintelligence, and integrated strategy. Well, Dr. Lanchowski, thank you very much for having us today, and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda, Dr. Wan, and I'd like to thank the also uh, reiterate our thanks to Dr. Long and to Kimmy for everything that they do for IWP and, uh, and letting us enjoy this magnificent space here for classes and special events. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our students who've uh, taken the trouble of coming out here in the rain, and I'd like to acknowledge the presence and express my gratitude to our Dean, uh, Dr. Jim Robbins, who is here, and uh, as well as other uh, friends and alums and so on. I, it's just great to see you all. Um, I, uh, the title of this talk is, is U.S. Cold War Strategy Against China. And from this, you know, some people would assume that I am recommending that we initiate a cold war against China. Uh, I'd like to clarify a major point. Uh, I make a distinction between the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and the Chinese people, the Chinese nation. The strategy I propose to discuss concerns one targeted against the Chinese Communist Party. The people who might say that I'm recommending that we start a Cold War are also those who deny that such a Cold War already exists. The most recent example of this was uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who made a recent statement that the administration seeks uh, to, quote, prevent competition from becoming anything ever near conflict. Well, State Department leaders have also characterized the U.S.-China relationship in similar terms. The problem here is that either these leaders fail to see reality, or they are deliberately mischaracterizing it in hopes that perhaps by, by treating China uh, as a competitor rather than as an adversary, it will be encouraged to keep the relationship at the level of competition rather than conflict. This, of course, is a typical feature of uh, a, a, a time-honored tendency in our foreign policy community, which I call a pedagogical foreign policy, <clears throat> where some policymakers seek to teach adversaries to be good students, excuse me, good citizens, by treating them as if they are good citizens in the world. The reality is that the Chinese Communist Party, and not China as an entire nation, has been conducting Cold War actions against the United States now for decades. Let me count the ways. What about narcotics warfare against us? The export of, of fentanyl to this country, which is killing tens of thousands, maybe even 100,000 uh, Americans a year. Promoting narcotics usage over TikTok, Promoting pornography, ever, uh, ever uh, uh, extreme forms of it for uh, targeted at teenagers over TikTok. Conducting laser tests to blind American satellites, which they did already in 2007. Massive espionage against our government, the theft of national security secrets, the theft of intellectual property, 
that is depriving us not only of our technological edge in military affairs, but our competitive edge in the world economy. The, the CCP has sent AK-47s to Los Angeles street gangs, which were intercepted by U.S. Customs Intelligence, uh, quite a neighborly thing to do. The next thing that was in the pipeline were Stinger missile knockoffs, which were also destined for those street gangs. It, 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 this was the origin of, of this particular export was, uh, uh, was, tra was, was tracked to very high levels in the Chinese government. The China has taken, the Chinese Communist Party, I should say, has taken aggressive actions against our aircraft and our, our naval vessels, not to mention those of their neighbors. They've made constant threats to Taiwan. They are making uh, massive military preparations uh, targeted against us. They have a global strategy to occupy choke points, establish port facilities and bases throughout the world. Uh, they've been propagandizing their people and their armed forces that the United States is not only an enemy, but is the main enemy. Um, they have their predatory trade practices, mercantilistic, beggar thy neighbor policies, which are designed to put our businesses out of business by violating the, the normal international trade laws. <clears throat> they support movements in this country that are designed uh, to aggravate racial tensions and, uh, within our own country. They make threats to Chinese Americans who oppose the CCP by threatening their relatives in China. Uh, they conduct uh, personal data collection uh, of all kinds, including our DNA, our, uh, the, the dossiers of our background investigations of 21 million uh, security clearance holders that were stolen from the Office of Personnel Management. They're collecting DNA from the ancestry companies. Uh, so they're collecting uh, information uh, on, on, they have the information, the medical records of something like 70 to 80 million Americans that was stolen by one, from one of the major uh, medical insurance companies. They have engaged in constant uh, mendacity, uh, deception and broken promises in their diplomacy and they conduct influence operations everywhere in our country, targeting our politicians, former cabinet members, intelligence agency directors, current and retired flag officers, business leaders, academic leaders, sinologists, students at all levels, with special attention to graduate students in international affairs and law students, Hollywood, and especially influencing our media. The failure of successive U.S. administrations to share most of these facts with the American people and with the world is one of the greatest failures of leadership in, our modern, in the modern era. The only exception in the last 30 years was the last administration's work in this field, whatever you may think of its president. With all the self-censorship by those charged with our nation's security, is it any surprise that so many Americans still harbor enormous illusions about the CCP and its intentions, notwithstanding this greater skepticism about, about uh, the CCP as a result of the, uh, the COVID pandemic? Cold War with the CCP is real. 
It's ongoing. And until we start facing reality, we are going to lose. If we're to avoid such a fate, policy, U.S. policy must do what it can to stop the aggression, to deter it, and ultimately prevail in the effort to eliminate the source of tensions between the two sides. So what indeed is the source of tensions between the United States and communist China? The answer to this question is essential if we are to develop a successful uh, strategy that can achieve genuine peace. One of the great faults of so much of American diplomacy is that its leaders too often try to create the atmospherics of peace rather than genuine peace. They like to target symptoms rather than of tension rather than causes of tension and fail to realize that one can never achieve a reduction of tensions without a reduction of concerns. And the concerns we have are the totalitarian nature of the Chinese communist regime, its massive human rights violations, its crimes against humanity, including its genocide of the Uyghur Muslims, its cultural genocide of Tibet, its harvesting of organs of political prisoners for transplantation in members of its elite and foreign medical tourists, its espionage and intellectual property theft against us, its military buildup, and so forth. At the root of all these policies is, is the very nature of the CCP, its genetic code, its DNA. That nature is defined by the regime's ideological foundation, which produces the profound ideological incompatibility between communist regime and the United States. The failure of so many of our foreign policy makers to have an effective policy toward communist China is, lies in the failure to understand this ideological dimension. In the early days of the Cold War, George Kennan observed that the Soviet Communist Party hates us not for what we do, but for who we are. And who we are is a democratic republic whose very existence was a source of contagion and a repudiation of the validity of Marxism-Leninism, the legitimizing principle of the Soviet Communist Party's authority. That same principle holds for the Chinese Communist Party. For decades, our leaders believed that if we helped China with our technology, if we conducted harmonious trade relations with it, we would encourage it to undergo political reforms. This assumed that the party would voluntarily give up its monopoly of power. This utopian reverie was characterized by President Trump's last national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, as the greatest foreign policy failure since the 1930s. This illusion was born of the pandemic ignorance about totalitarian ideologies, and specifically communism, an ideology and political system which the bien-pensant decided no longer existed. As the great uh, author David Satter entitled one of his books about Soviet communism, quote, it was a long time ago and it never really happened anyway. Laboring under such illusions, 
countless foreign policy, business, cultural, and academic leaders have relentlessly advocated and pursued policies of engagement, attempts to produce detente. These policies have inevitably proved to be counterproductive. They serve the CCP's interests by psychologically disarming Americans, which is the precursor to physical disarmament. Three schools of thought have underlain these policies. There are the foreign policy experts who, first of all, they're the foreign policy experts who suffer from diplomatism, which is the practice of placing the priority on diplomatic process rather than diplomatic substance. Keep the negotiating process going because boy, if the negotiations somehow stop, then it, we necessarily will be launching missiles against one another. A completely bogus argument. There are the business leaders, academic leaders, sinologists, scientists, and others who personally profit or their institutions profit from engagement with China. Then there are the people who have been corrupted, co-opted, or recruited by the CCP. And here you can call them agents of influence. And there are many degrees of agents of influence. Some of them have been uh, convicted of espionage, even though perhaps some of the worst things that they did to our country were in the realm of influencing policy. <clears throat> the dominant policy of engagement almost never includes efforts to establish a level playing field. Instead, most policies towards communist China have been proven to be defensive and reactive and seem to tolerate or be utterly unaware of the abuses that Beijing has heaped upon us. The com a complete strategy, of course, has to, has to uh, address defensive measures. And while I will touch on some of these, there's a considerable literature that already covers this dimension. The most salient of these concern uh, reviving our military um, uh, and preventing the CCP from stealing our military technology and applying it to its armaments, sometimes even sooner than we apply it to our own. Uh, also among these measures is restricting uh, the CCP's access to our capital markets, its participation in high-tech joint ventures, and so on and so forth. In spite of our sensitivity about some of these things, I just read in the paper yesterday that both uh, communist Chinese and North Korean delegations just uh, were admitted to a huge U.S. arms expo uh, that was taking place in Las Vegas, and maybe is still going. What's missing from the various, you know, from our overall strategy, uh, however, are, ingredi are ingredients of a strategy that could be considered offensive. A strategy that would put the CCP on its defensive. What's missing are policies of reciprocity, whether they are symmetrical or asymmetrical. Herewith are a few suggestions on how to develop and implement such a strategy. They derive from some key lessons of the Cold War that are as applicable towards China as they were towards the old USSR. The first requirement of strategy is that it has to have a coherent goal. 
Our ideal goal should be to eliminate the source of tensions between the Chinese regime and the United States. That means changing the DNA of the Chinese regime. As a practical matter, it means ending the CCP's monopoly of power. This is not something that the United States can do all by ourselves. It has to be done by the Chinese people. But the United States can help. Secretary Blinken has explicitly stated that this is not our goal. Now, his statement can mean that this administration will not do what is necessary to enhance the chances that the Chinese people will demand and realize political change. Or if you want to give the administration the benefit of the doubt, his statement can mean that the administration might well do what is necessary, but it wants to avoid articulating such a strategic objective. You know, the likelihood that uh, the latter hypothesis is true, however, is belied by what I consider to be the administration's strategic confusion concerning the communist regime. Whatever the case, U.S. policy should do what it can to help the Chinese people and give them opportunities to resist the CCP's monopoly rule. The first lesson from the Cold War is recognition of the regime's vulnerabilities. This requires a much greater intelligence effort and, and here, not so much in threat-based intelligence, which is always necessary, but in what we at IWP call opportunities intelligence. What are the opportunities that can be exploited? Rarely do policymakers ask the intelligence community for that kind of intelligence. One of the conventional theories about the collapse of the USSR was the vulnerability of the Soviet economy. Many analysts have long maintained that the Reagan military buildup outspent Soviet efforts in this domain and helped force the collapse of the Soviet system. There's truth to this, but it's not the whole truth. While the civilian economy in the USSR was always in crisis from the very beginning, the real crisis was in its military economy, its inability to keep up with US military technology. The emergence of the Strategic Defense Initiative, stealth technology, and the computer revolution in military affairs put enormous pressure on Soviet military industry and forced the Soviet leadership to seek a technological bailout from the West. Then there were U.S. technology security policies, export controls, and the efforts to constrain Soviet access to hard currency. All this put more pressure on the Soviet military economy. China has avoided this problem. First, by having enjoyed decades of overt and covert U.S. scientific and technological assistance, we assisted China in the development of 10,000 different technologies. We have permitted Chinese scientists to make 5,000 visits a year to our national laboratories, where a visit constitutes a stay of two weeks to two years, and we have just plied them with our advanced technology. And then, of course, there have been the decades of Chinese espionage and intellectual property theft. Meanwhile, since China has made such a major effort to educate legions of science, scientists and engineers at home, 
it may well have developed a capacity for innovation to match that of the United States, especially in sectors like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and the weaponization of space. However, the nature of the communist system continues to impose constraints on the freedom of, inter of intellectual intercourse and freedom of entrepreneurial development. China, therefore, continues to depend on espionage in the West to secure the technologies to make it militarily competitive. Only when the United States and our allies severely constrain the CCP's ability to steal our intellectual property and our national secrets will we be able to, to exploit a military-industrial vulnerability in China. This, of course, depends on getting serious about technology security policies and counterespionage. Counterespionage requires a vast amount of resources, and China has so many spies with such unconstrained access that it will not solve the problem, uh, counterespionage counter will not solve the problem until we have a policy that restricts Chinese entry into the United States in a way similar to restrictions on Soviet visitors. So there are, one of our alums has told, who works in this field has told us that China has 25,000 intelligence collectors in Silicon Valley alone. 25,000 in Silicon Valley alone. And that doesn't count the graduate students who have, uh, who have come already armed with advanced engineering degrees, studying in our engineering schools and our other scientific departments. Uh, why do they have those degrees? Why do they come here when they have the degrees already? It's because it's easier for them to identify the cutting edge technology that they can steal from their professors. <clears throat> anyway, to reduce the number, the numbers, of, uh, of, of Chinese intelligence collectors in this country will require an ever greater decoupling of our two economies and lessening our dependence on Chinese supply chains for innumerable products. Another Soviet vulnerability was imperial overstretch. We exploited this through the Reagan Doctrine, which was our support for anti-communist resistance movements throughout the extended Soviet empire. China's Belt and Road Initiative may well be presenting a similar problem for the CCP. Communist China may have won some temporary goodwill from those to whom it has lent large sums, but its debt trap diplomacy, among other things, has produced and portends ever greater alienation from China. We can take advantage of this, not only with our own competitive efforts to invest in the developing world, but also through a reinvigorated public diplomacy. A third major vulnerability within the old USSR was a crisis within the ranks of the party and the larger Soviet nomenklatura, the, the senior governmental and managerial leadership. The party, according to good Leninist principles, was to be like, a like the medieval monasteries, separate from society while having a decisive influence over it. Its cadres had to be disciplined. They had to have partinost, party-mindedness. However, 
Over time, the party became the province not only of ne'er-do-wells who wanted to lord over people who were more accomplished than they, but of cynics who were only after power. Marxism-Leninism, of course, is not only a theory of knowledge, a theory of history, of economy, of politics, and of society. It is also an ideology of how to seize and how to wield power. It maintains a rigorous system of enforced conformity, identifying deviations of many types. Excessive cynicism, characterized by cadres who use their party membership as an opportunity for self-advancement, is one of those deviations. The Soviet Communist Party was full of cynics and communists of convenience who were susceptible to corruption. They accepted bribes from the underground mafia. They invested in illegal enterprises in the underground economy. And they developed forms of self-interest which were at variance with the party's interest. In their corruption, they became members of society ceasing to be separated from it, like the monks, and they lost their party-mindedness. They ceased being good ideological robots, and they became human beings, even in their corruption. Andropov and Gorbachev both tried to combat this corruption in the USSR by conducting ideological purification campaigns. Gorbachev, for one, tried cracking down on the most corrupting influence, the underground economy. Having studied how this factor contributed to the Soviet collapse, the Chinese Communist Party has attempted to avoid this problem by co-opting self-interest and making it compatible with being a good party member. This policy, however, has not worked out so well. Xi Jinping, has had to conduct a massive anti-corruption campaign, precisely because of the breakdown of party discipline. He sends deviationist journalists to ideological re-education re programs. He has doubled down on the use of ideology as the standard of enforced conformity. He knows, as Lenin, Stalin, Andropov, Gorbachev, and Mao all knew, that ideology was the key element of the internal security system of the communist state. It is the foundation of semantic control, thought control, speech control, and ultimately behavior control. How then can a breakdown of party discipline be exploited? First, by exposing it, by showing how the party's time-honored methods of rejuvenating that discipline necessitate an attack on the humanity not only of members of society at large, but of the party members themselves. The party has divisions within it, in addition to all this, that can be exacerbated. Just as Boris Yeltsin made a genuine break with the party, figures within the CCP may do so as well. Ideological support for those figures can be a method to encourage them. But this requires two abilities which haven't been well cultivated within our government. One is sensitivity to the strategic importance of party discipline and the vulnerability that the party suffers when it has lost such discipline. 
And secondly, the capacity to conduct political warfare and ideological warfare. And this brings us to the main vulnerability. The central fact of political life in the old USSR was the illegitimacy of the regime. The fact that it ruled without the consent of the governed. As a result, the party had a mortal fear of its own people and of democratic ideas that could mobilize its people to reject them. To address those fears, the CPSU, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, mobilized a massive internal security system and conducted a foreign policy that was designed to show the invincible power of the regime, that it was so powerful even against the United States and the West that how could people behind the Iron Curtain even contemplate resisting it? This same vulnerability, this illegitimacy, applies to China today. The party rules without the consent of the governed, and it must constantly ensure that there are moral or practical reasons why it deserves to be in power. In the old USSR, the party used its ideology as the legitimizing vehicle. But that wore thin, and so it had to find auxiliary principles. The main one was the Soviet victory in World War II. We, the party, were the ones who saved the nation from the terrible Nazis. Therefore, we deserve to be here. The Chinese Communist Party has the same problem. And just as the credibility of Marxist-Leninist ideology with Chinese characteristics has worn thin, the CCP has used its supervision of a rising economy to justify its rule. But the explosive growth rate of the past couple of decades has been drastically reduced. Of course, we can't be sure about Chinese economic statistics, which, because of the opacity of the system, are full of deceptive numbers. <clears throat> but given um, so many of Xi Jinping's policies, the past era of productivity is not likely to continue. This is due largely to three factors. First, the socialist economy, and as a matter of principle, produces inevitable dislocations. The state allocation of capital produces such phenomena as asset bubbles, such as in real estate, which could cause one or another kind of financial crisis. Secondly, the population is shrinking. And historically, population growth or decline has strongly correlated with economic growth or decline. And third, finally, the, C the, the, uh, the CCP's ability to steal our technology will likely shrink over time, especially as it dawns on our national leaders that it is not in our national interest to invest billions in R&D only to hand our intellectual property over to the CCP. This realization will inevitably produce the gradual decoupling of our economy from China's, and the CCP will start having to invest in its own R&D as it never did before. If we're to get serious about our strategy, this decoupling and our military buildup should be affected at warp speed. So the CCP's auxiliary legitimizing principle of party authority its supervision 
of a growing economy will gradually erode. Legitimacy is the key element of the internal security system of the CCP. It's needed to, put, to, to shape the public's attitudes into accepting the regime in power. Some people may appreciate um, the, the CCP for bringing a higher standard of living to million of, millions of Chinese, so they might accept the party in power. When it comes to the ideology, this particular legitimizing instrument um, and encourages the people to recognize that the CCP is indeed riding the crest of the wave of history, that its ultimate victory is inevitable, and that the forces of history are inexorable. Even if the cadres cease to believe in this ideology, it can never be abandoned, not only because of its essential legitimizing role, but because it sets the standard against which deviationism is measured. It is the drum beating for soldiers marching. It is a drum beat of official falsehoods. It's just like the emperor's new clothes, where everybody in the court has to say that the naked emperor is wearing beautiful clothes, and they do so either out of loyalty or mostly out of fear and the desire for self-preservation. So acceptance of the ideology and living in the constant atmosphere of the official lie can take the form of hopelessness, despair, and that psychological feeling of futile resignation. It amounts to recognition that the CCP is all-powerful and cannot be resisted. As the great theoretician of Marxism uh, Leszek Kolakowski has noted, the ideology reminds everybody who has got the gun. Xi Jinping has re re resurrected ideological conformity with his Xi Jinping thought for a very good reason. It is of a piece with the Soviet efforts to conduct ideological purification in order to combat corruption, restore party discipline, and as a bonus, eliminate rivals for power. It's, it, uh, it is a reflection of the ongoing crisis of legitimacy and the, intern, and the, and the continuing in, in insecurity of the regime. Now this insecurity can be measured in many other ways. And the chief measuring stick is looking at what their internal security system uh, amounts to. So let me just list a few things. As a, these are obvious, but let's remember, it consists of the, the, the party's monopoly of information and communications. It's specifically its control over the internet, its censorship of information using the great firewall and the internet police, who are more numerous, by the way, than the members of the People's Liberation Army, the jamming of foreign broadcasts, radio and television, the party's control over education, publishing, cinema, other forms of entertainment, its control over internal travel, its control over capital and the priorities by which it is allocated, its massive network of secret police informants, its system of prisons, slave labor camps known as the Laogai, 
And finally, there's the internal propaganda designed to co-opt the people through nationalistic appeals and the use of revisionist history. And this is just some of it, there's more. All of these methods and institutions are designed to make up for the fundamental failure of the party's legitimizing vehicles. A strategy to achieve peace with China must therefore involve a policy that cannot be simply defensive and reactive. It has to have a positive dimension, a constructive goal. Communism cannot be fought solely with anti-communism. It must offer a positive alternative. The great Russian human rights activist, the inventor of the Soviet H-bomb, Andrei Sakharov, declared to the Kremlin bosses that they would never have peace with the West until they had peace with their own people. And that meant respecting and defending the people's human rights. This was a central insight that led to American success in the ideological war against the USSR. We offered the peoples of the Soviet empire a vision of a world governed by respect for human rights, political, economic, and religious freedom, freedom of speech, the rule of law, and the consent of the governed. In the face of the regime's official and ideological, uh, its official ideological and propagandistic falsehoods, we have to offer the Chinese people the truth. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn declared, one word of truth outweighs the world. We must offer these things to the Chinese people. In war, including Cold War, offense includes attacking the enemy's center of gravity, which is that thing without which the enemy cannot make war, that without which the enemy cannot survive. The center of gravity in China is the internal security system of the regime. U.S. strategy then must help the Chinese people overcome all the repressive measures of the Chinese internal security system so that they can bring about political change. But they'll never step, stand up to the party if they're paralyzed by fear and separated by, from one another by the regime's efforts to atomize society. And so to combat that fear, their isolation, and the sense of futile resignation suffered by so many who dissent from CCP orthodoxy, we have to give them hope and help them build up their own courage. This is a challenge for a psychological policy. But in contrast to most of what the United States does in psyops, which are tactical, this requires psyops at the national strategic level. Offering the positive political alternative is key to the war of ideas. It requires arguing the superiority of democracy for all of its fractiousness. It means, this means a direct challenge to the legitimacy of the regime. This means a massive effort to revive our international broadcasting capabilities, particularly the Voice of America and Radio Free Asia. But these are not just radio stations. They also incorporate television and the internet. Recently, in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, 
Congress appropriated $20 million to our broadcasters to, to broadcast to that region. And while every nickel is welcome, this was not serious, especially after these services stopped broadcasting uh, in the Russian language, for example, over shortwave radio, which is the one medium uh, by which you can reach large numbers of people, especially in times of crisis. Lots of people don't listen to shortwave these days around the world, but when there's a crisis, they'll dig up their shortwave radio from their uh, back of their nightstand, and uh, and they'll start listening to what's actually happening. Even though shortwave radio can be jammed, it still enjoys periods of immunity uh, from jamming in rural and exurban areas, and that's a technical issue. When confronted with the same challenge in the Cold War, the Reagan administration appropriated $2.5 billion to strengthen our broadcasts. And when Lech Walesa, the first the, the solidarity leader, the first non-communist president of post-communist Poland, came to Washington, they asked him, how important was Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America to the rise and the sustenance of the solidarity movement? And his reply was, would there be life on Earth without the sun? Today, we have to try to reach the Chinese people in every way possible, through shortwave, medium wave, digital radio mundial, which is the application of the digital re revolution to radio broadcasting. We have to revive television broadcasts. All these must be transmitted on many frequencies for many hours a day. We must make major investments to circumvent the Great Firewall. We have to use instruments like Starlink and the technology of a new company that is putting hundreds of satellites into space that are becoming orbiting cell phone towers that will make terrestrial cell phone towers obsolete. There are also battery-sized satellites that I've heard about that have the capability of broadcasting. Hundreds of them can be deployed to get the truth to the Chinese people. We also have to communicate with Chinese students, business people, and others who visit us. Hundreds and even thousands of those visitors are able to come here, of course, because they're privileged members of the communist order. But students, for example, can't fully take advantage of American freedom. They're tracked both technologically via their cell phones and by their secret police minders including representatives of Confucius Institutes on American campuses. The CCP's intelligence services have even set up their own police stations on our territory to suppress Chinese residents here. We should not only shut down the Confucius Institutes and the police stations, but make a special effort to communicate with Chinese students and enable them to communicate with the rest of the world and with each other without fear that their CCP-supplied cell phone uh, is bugged. We should give each of them a non-bug cell phone and maybe even their own non-bug laptop. We have to prevent the CCP from controlling the global internet by monopolizing the whole 5G system. Communist regimes not only fear the truth, they fear the instantaneity of information. And they fear information media that their people can access in order to communicate with millions of their fellow countrymen. 
What happens when there is a disturbance, a civil disturbance in a totalitarian country? The regime cuts off all communications to that locality. Only then does it crush the demonstration, the riot, or the strike. And if news gets out to the rest of the nation about such a disturbance, it, it was that the disturbance was crushed. But if the news gets out before it's crushed, the opportunity arises for the disturbance to spread. That's what happened in Poland with the Solidarity Strikers. They developed underground lines of communication for Europe and the Voice of America that enabled them to broadcast to millions of their own countrymen that of the very existence, the news of the very existence of that strike. The regime, of course, cut off all communications to the city, but the news still got before that uh, to, you know, to, to uh, in spite of that, excuse me, uh, to millions of Poles that the strike was happening and millions of people joined the Solidarity Movement, which presaged the collapse of the Soviet system. One of the soundest principles of strategy is that you have to know who your allies are. And it goes without saying that the building and strengthening of alliances with Japan, with India, Australia, South Korea, the Philippines, and even Taiwan and Vietnam and others is essential if we are to successfully deter war. But in my view, the greatest potential allies in all of this, especially if we're going to achieve genuine peace with China, are the Chinese people. And among them, of course, are members of the Chinese diaspora all over the world, including so many here in the United States. We have to work with their organizations and prevent those organizations from being co-opted and corrupted by the CCP. We have to work with the National Endowment for Democracy and enable it to help the democratic movements within, within China. There are something like 70,000 civil disturbances in China every year. Most of them are riots or demonstrations, than usually protesting local Communist Party corruption. Do these demonstrators, or for that matter, does the whole Chinese nation know about the existence of, of the other uh, disturbances? They don't. And this is because of the effectiveness of the regime's control of information. If there is a center of gravity, Within the larger center of gravity of the communist uh, internal security system, it is the party's monopoly of information. The central strategic objective of a U.S. strategy must be to break that monopoly. There are myriad of steps that can be taken as part of an offensive strategy, but I've attempted here to set forth some of the basic strategic principles that involve information political and ideological warfare, and psychological strategy. These are all vehicles, non-kinetic vehicles of warfare, of statecraft, that Beijing has mastered and is targeting against us on a daily basis. It's time that we respond reciprocally with courage and with courage. I would let me 
me just first observe that in Russia, they had um, a culture that was rather similar in many respects, because Russia grew out not so much out of Kiev and Rus, it grew out of Muscovy. And the Muscovites derived their power by virtue of the fact that they were the agents of the Mongol Khan. And they literally would go serve as the footstools for the Khan. And they learned the Oriental despotism from the, the Khan's court. And so uh, Russia never went through the uh, Renaissance, the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, Enlightenment and so many of the other influences that have contributed to the, 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 the building of the West. And so there has been uh, a, a not dissimilar uh, culture of acceptance of, of authority, uh, of autocratic authority in, in Russia. And yet the people still knew that there was something dreadfully wrong about the Communist Party rule. And as, as Solzhenitsyn said, the worst thing about living under communism was not so much the, the, the daily privations, which not everywhere in China, there are plenty of privations in many parts of China, but not everywhere. But and, and it was almost universal, except for the nomenclatura in the Soviet Union. But he said the worst thing was not those privations and standing in line for four hours every day to get to the basic necessities of life. It was the daily force feeding of a steady diet of lies. And as some of you may have heard me say, I like to quote Solzhenitsyn on this. He said, when the lie fastens its claws around your neck, it is not only an attack, a political attack, it is an attack on your human dignity. And that problem exists in China. And even though people may accept autocratic rule at one level, there is a certain natural sense of justice. And there's so much injustice in, in China. And there is so much official falsehood that it goes against people's natural inclinations to, to, to listen to what is true. And, and, and so, the daily force feeding of a steady diet of lies is something which is, is by the natural law, alienating to people, and it is something that can be exploited by, uh, you know, by our efforts. And, and, and I think that the Beijing regime has done a great job at harnessing Chinese nationalism. But we should start somewhere and, and make it clear that the Chinese people are not our enemies. But, you know, we, this requires a diplomacy. You know, most of the, what the State Department likes to do is, is, is government-to-government diplomacy. And they do some public diplomacy. But public diplomacy is not the, your ticket to advancement in the U.S. diplomatic corps. Um, and, and, and so, you know, many, many of our traditional diplomats are suspicious of, of public diplomacy because it rocks the boat when it comes to official bilateral relations. And we need to be more sophisticated about conducting a double track policy that may be a correct policy or a policy towards the regime, but a warm policy toward the people. And those are two separate policies. 
Um, I think that there is a, 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 a compatibility between the two sides, and I think that that um, you know for for a long time it was my view that that China was actually objectively the greatest threat that Russia was facing, and that if Russia got off its imperialist, revanchist enthusiasm, uh, that it perhaps ought to be collaborating with the West in some kind of an effort to contain China. Uh, I can hardly wait for the day when uh, the labor force in one of these uh, eastern Siberian provinces decides that it wants to have a referendum over which country it wants to uh, uh, it wants to live in, uh, a la the Crimean referendum. Uh, but um, because the United States has been reasonably skillful in launching the Quad uh, with our relations also AUKUS and, and these other formations that, that are uh, reminiscent of NATO and CETO and so on and so forth. Um, I think that um, China uh, has to look for allies itself in ways that it is unaccustomed to doing. And while it has not seen Russia particularly as one of those, uh, it, it finds that Russia's illegitimacy, the illegitimacy of the Putin regime, uh, I am skeptical about the results of Russian elections. Uh, maybe I'm an election denier. Uh, and, uh, but uh, the, they, they, they share a lot of common interests in, in that sphere. The, you know, the, there's also an illusion that, that, um, that, that some people in this country entertain that North Korea is a, a thorn in the side of China. Well, excuse me, but Chinese-North Korean relations are conducted according to the communist principle of proletarian internationalism, which is a new form of, inter of, of international relations, not done on a state-to-state -state basis, but done on a party-to-party -party basis. And, uh, and, and so... Maybe they're not doing party-to-party -party relations, so to speak, with Russia, but there is a certain compatibility there. Um, I, uh, I don't. The, one of the problems, of course, is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has thrown a monkey wrench into those gears, and and uh, the, the it is awkward for China to come out whole hog in favor of, of Russia's invasion. Because this has not all has a very significant alienating uh, influence on uh, its European trading partners, particularly, and and so there are uh, you know, somehow the course of history has has thrown complications into what might look like uh, a natural alliance, but it isn't so natural. I hope that helps us to it. First of all, there is an enormous amount of ignorance about this history. Uh, there's been a precipitous decline in the study of history in American universities. Uh, there is a, a, the study of communism is almost non-existent. Uh, you can learn about communism at IWP, by the way. So please send students. You know, and we'll put them. You know, ninety-seven percent of our students get really good jobs. And, our student loan default rate 
is zero. <laughs> uh, so um, the education problem is one. But why? How about the? How about other people who might potentially know more? Well, so much has been corrupted. Um, the Washington Post and the New York Times have taken millions of dollars from Beijing's propaganda ministry to publish their their their, their China Watch supplement. Now, I think that at least the Post I think has stopped doing this. I think they were finally shamed into it. But for years they were publishing this stuff, and 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 the China Watch supplement was not only classic communist propaganda, which is designed to make China look like a normal country, a normal state, but the, the real damage is what the Washington Post and the New York Times did not report about strategic developments that are in, in China, coming from China that are inimical to the national security of the United States. You could not read about new military developments, uh, military buildup. You could not read about their espionage unless there was some very, very high-profile spy case where the FBI arrested somebody and so on and so forth. But um, the the media, no, the, the, the television media follow the lead of the New York Times and the Washington Post. So the, the media have been remarkably corrupted. Um, our, uh, our China experts have been corrupted. They've been given all expenses paid trips. Uh, they, they, and by the way, our journalists in resident in China are are uh, are subject to self censorship, enormous self censorship, and then many of them, uh, you know, are 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 shown and only go to the place that that I call Chinese Tourlandia, uh, and uh, we're in. and so then you've got the business leaders who are are uh, effectively co opted. The neutralization of the U.S. business community is a strategic coup. Uh, that, that Beijing has, has has achieved that are, are making you know that is making uh, uh, you know Lenin and Stalin and all of them just roll with envy in their graves uh, and, and what China has managed to do. Um, they they have uh, corrupted our think tanks. Um, let me count some of the some of them. How about the Carnegie uh, Endowment for International Peace? Uh, how about uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies? How about my alma mater, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies? How about the Carter Center, the East-West Center, the Atlantic Council? Uh, all I think all of these and others, except one. I can't remember who the one is, so I don't want to besmirch everybody. But all <laughs> of them have done joint projects with front organizations of Chinese intelligence. And all but one of them have taken money from front organizations of Chinese intelligence. And these are our think tanks. And then you've got the, the corruption of our former cabinet members, secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, flag officers, intelligence agency heads. And these people, they leave their government service, they go work for... Madeline Albright's Stonebridge Group or the Cohen Group run by William Cohen, former Secretary of Defense and Senator. Uh, and they're in the business of opening doors in China 
for American corporations. So even though the American corporation pays them, they are indirectly on Beijing's payroll. And you can hear them all talk about the threat of the jihadists, the threat from the Russians, every other threat in the world. But you'll never hear them talk about the threat from China. That's the problem. They, are, they, they have been neutralized. And I can go on. Hollywood has, has, been, has been affected. So every major opinion-forming influence in this country has been affected. And it is, it is a, re a remarkable corruption. And it is because people want money more than they want to keep their freedom in the United States of America. I think that we should welcome a, a political change in the direction of democracy. Democracies tend not to, to uh, want to go to war with one another. Uh, there is nowhere near the same constituency in a democracy in favor of massive, massive military spending. Uh, one of the reasons why in, in the Soviet Union, the, the party had to maintain not only its monopoly of power, but its monopoly control over the economy was because it had to set the military and its means of mass domestic mass mobilization, propaganda, and internal security as the highest priorities of, uh, of, of, of in, in the Soviet budget. And, um, you know, our intelligence community once told us uh, that the percentage of the Soviet economy devoted to the military was 5%. It was actually more like 50%. And I actually saw one study uh, in the immediate post-Soviet period um, coming out of Russia that said it was as high as 80% of the Soviet economy was devoted to the military, which I don't know that was particularly credible, but I think the 50% figure is, is, is much more credible. Um, I think that um, the, the notion of a, a hegemon, uh, you know, this would be, it would be a more regional thing. A China, a democratic China that wanted to cast the shadow of its power over the East Asian region would probably not be a lot different than the American hegemonic power over our neighbors. After all, is, is American hegemony over Mexico and Canada, for example, is, is that really a, 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 a kind of a, a chilling relationship? Is it a, is it, is it a, a bogus form of peace? Actually, it, it isn't what you would call um, classical hegemony because there are really actually good neighborly relations between us in Mexico and us in Canada. And I would imagine that Chinese relations with Vietnam and with Korea and with other, even with Japan, would be more harmonious if it were, uh, you know, if it were a democracy and if, and, and if China were focusing on, on uh, commercial affairs rather than subverting the world. China wouldn't have an interest in controlling both sides of the Panama Canal. It wouldn't have an interest in building a military base in the Bahamas. Um, it, 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 could, it could worry about the standard of living and the freedom of its own people. 
assuming that that's the, the direction it went. Um, so I would welcome it. And, and of course, you know, we hoped that perhaps something more benevolent would emerge in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but, you know, one of the problems is that it, it, the, the democracy that we hoped would emerge wasn't going to emerge so easily because the nomenclatura, the party apparatchiks and so on were so well entrenched and they were able to steal the means of production, basically buying those vouchers that were distributed to the people, uh, stock vouchers for, you know, kopecks on the ruble. Uh, they were, uh, they basically stole the, the, the means of production and, and they became the oligarchs and uh, it is, Many of these people had the idea that capitalism is thievery, so we'll, we'll be thieves too. And, and, and so uh, I don't imagine that uh, you know, the kind of society that it has taken us a couple of hundred years to build, which is still imperfect, for goodness sake, is going to emerge in, in, China, in, in a post-communist China. Uh, but something better, than what exists now will emerge if there is some kind of political change and that party ceases to have its monopoly of power. I think that that's an excellent point, uh, and it only reinforces the, uh, very strongly the point that I made that we need to be engaging in some of our policies, like the restoration of our, our military power, uh, and the uh, and the decoupling from uh, the, the our dependence upon Chinese supply chains uh, at warp speed. I mean, th this is such an urgent matter. I mean, I know that Chinese that the Taiwan Semiconductor Corporation is trying to build uh, a new facility in Arizona, and um, the the problem is that. It can't run that facility without having enough engineers, and we don't have enough semiconductor engineers here to do the job. And so Taiwan is bringing them over there, bringing our people over there to teach them how to do this. And they better teach them quickly. Uh, but we need to make sure that we are successful in deterring a, a Chinese uh, a Chinese invasion. And um, you know it is. It's very difficult to tell what the strategic decision might be. I mean, there's by, by Beijing when it comes when it comes to Taiwan. The, the last couple of years have been, in my view, a very dangerous period in dealing with China because there may be a sense, and perhaps there is a sense, that in in Beijing that they are a lot stronger than they actually are especially if they're going to deal with, you know, not only our, uh, you know, our forces, but with allied forces. And when they see the rise of, J of Japan's uh, national defense force, uh, they have to, you know, this is something that they've got to be extremely worried about. And uh, it's, of course, the fact that Japan has felt constrained to do this is a sign of its lack of confidence in the American, the credibility of the American deterrent. 
uh, which is not a good sign. Uh, I'm glad that the Japanese are going to start contributing to all of this. And even, you know, during the Cold War, even though a lot of people got mad at France for not being part of the military structure of NATO, I kind of liked the fact that the French had enough uh, will to have their own force to frap and, uh, and, and, and their own deterrent. Uh, and, and that it, and when it came down to brass tacks, France would be on our side. Uh, so I think it's good that Japan is doing this, but this is a, a perilous moment because maybe China may want to try to take Taiwan before the Japanese forces or the American forces get sufficiently large to be a, a clear determined. Uh, so uh, we need we need to be much more uh, concerned, much more intensive. Uh, and and uh, I don't see a lot of strategic leadership. Maybe in the, the new uh, House of Representatives, there's going to be a new committee on, on China. Uh, and, um, and I think that this is a, you know, I, th I think it's a very constructive thing. But uh, the national conversation has to move a long way uh, if we're going to try to, to do what's necessary in order to prevent war.